and welcome back to our three-part podcast on memory politics, which stems from a conference on the topic held at Harvard University in August 2018. I'm Olga Kuzmina, a graduate student at the Davis Center for Russian and Eurasian Studies at Harvard University. In our first installment, we explored the legal aspects of memory regulation and how laws about historical memory impact democracy in Europe. In this episode, we'll talk to a different group of scholars about the ways in which history is used and misused in contemporary political discourse. First off, we began like last time by asking participants how they got involved in memory studies. For this group, it was the study of countries where recent history looms large, namely Germany, Russia, and Eastern Europe, that led them to the field. Zvi Gittelman is Professor Emeritus at the University of Michigan, where he specializes in Eastern European politics and Jewish thought. His background in political science and a personal connection to the region brought him to the study of history and politics. So I'm where you are. This is a new field for me. I have spent 52 years teaching at colleges and universities, 49 and a half of them at the University of Michigan. And my field was East European politics. Later on, I switched into Judaic studies in part. I've always been interested in the Soviet Union and Eastern Europe. And since I was trained in a very traditional way in what was then called quaintly public law and government, my approach has always been historical. Whereas in my political science department in Michigan, the approach has been behavioral, quantitative, and so on. So, uh, historians probably thought of me as a political scientist. Political scientists thought of me as a historian. So it was quite natural for me to get interested in the politics of history. And as I observed, various histories being written and rewritten, both during the communist and the post-communist period, I realized that history is politicized, and I became very interested in the politics of history. Since um, I remember, not from personal experience, but from personal encounters, the Holocaust, and some of my family was murdered during it, I always had an interest in it. And, contra and in contrast to popular and totally misguided beliefs, some of which was propagated by scholars in the United States, the Holocaust was widely spoken about before 1960. And uh, the fact is that as a child growing up in the Bronx in New York, I knew many people who had numbers on their arms, people who spoke with funny accents, people who had various disabilities, people who couldn't have children, all the result of their experiences during World War II. For Russian historian Ivan Karila, the past is never past. As professor of history and international relations at the European University in St. Petersburg, Karila studies the relationship between the United States and Russia, and the way both countries have used images of one another to promote domestic goals up to the present day. You know, there is a famous uh, saying that the, uh, history is another country. So I started to study another country the past is another country, sorry, the past is another country. And I started to study another country or relations between Russia and America, and I found that it was it is very close how the contemporary Russians uh, deals with the past of Russia, uh, of the Russian past. And that was uh, the second factor of how I turned to study the 
presence of the past in the contemporary uh, society. This is actually my okay, my definition of what is memory studies: is the presence of the past in the contemporary. Karila and Gittelman focus on regions that feel a strong sense of victimhood. Eastern Europe was devastated during World War II, while in Russia, the invasion by Nazi Germany is still seen as the main event of the 20th century, and one that overshadows any wrongs that were committed by the Soviet Union. But other scholars are studying countries that are coming to terms with their role as a perpetrator, although this is never an easy undertaking. For Sarah Rausch at the University of Gessen, an interest in German history and post-colonial memory began when she was still in school. Well, I guess memory politics, I mean, it started really with a huge interest in the Holocaust. So and I guess that's really related to the socialization I had, because, I mean, at school already, we went to um, several commemoration places to the um, memorials and I became a, a guide to to give uh, tours to to young people about um, national socialism and uh, industry. And well, at at the same time, I just became aware of this fact that I didn't know anything about the colonies, the former German colonies. So first, uh, I um, I was interested in French colonialism. <laughs> Interestingly, so and um, I read a lot on France Afrique, Afrique uh, the the relations which still exist between France and West Africa, and uh, then I wanted to have an internship, but I ended up in Cameroon, which was a former German colony, and so that just started that all of these kind of experiences and the things I was interested in somehow like interacted and got into dialogue with, with each other and this is also now the reason why i'm working on this yeah on this question of entanglements because in the french context and in the german context the connection to the holocaust is important when like people are talking about um colonial history Mark Wolfgram, who teaches political science at McGill University, became interested in memory politics during his graduate studies at the University of Wisconsin in Madison. While writing his dissertation, he traveled to Germany, where he began to think about history in a whole new way. I thought, you know, Germans are just Americans who speak a different language and live someplace else. And and so I was spending that time in Germany really woke me up to, uh, wow, you know, th this history really matters to them in a different way than what I had anticipated. And so that, that really spurred things on further, and I, I knew what I wanted to work on in terms of the dissertation at that point. And I, I said, I have to figure out what's going on here. Um, Germans seem to have, be engaged with their history in a way that, as an American, I'm, I certainly wasn't at the time. Our final speaker, Thomas Berger, looks at how former empires deal with the memory of war and guilt. At Boston University, where he's a professor of international relations, Berger teaches and writes about German and Japanese politics. A comparison of German and Japanese defense and security policy since the 1980s was his entry into memory studies. There was the belief that Germany and Japan were rising powers and that it would be inevitable that they would become now also not just economic powers, but also taking on commensurate military and uh, geopolitical security roles. As I looked at Germany and Japan, it became very clear to me, based on my interviews and based on what I was reading, and what I was seeing taking place in those two countries, that those countries weren't going to do that. Now the question is why? And the answer was quite obvious. 
they did been there, done that, don't want to do that again. Um, to put it more briefly, um, Germany and Japan have looked at the past, looked at their experiences with geopolitics, and there is a profound, and continues today, profound rejection of playing, taking on that kind of role. They do want to play a larger role in the world, but not a military one. And that has to do with their particular interpretation of the past. No matter what region they study, scholars of memory face some common challenges. One is the issue of sources and potential biases from relying on one side's interpretation of the past. Zvi Gittelman's research on partisan warfare in Belarus and how it is remembered by various competing actors illustrates this point. Already during World War II itself, the Soviet Union began investigations of crimes committed by the Nazis on Belarusian soil. However, Gittelman found that these historical materials fail to reflect the complexity of the actual unfolding of the events. Uh, the materials I'm talking about are both governmental materials. For example, the reports of the Extraordinary Commission, it's a Soviet Extraordinary Commission, to investigate the crimes and atrocities of the Nazi invaders and their collaborators. That's a very long uh, title. That was the name of the commission, which began in 42 or 43 to go into liberated areas and speak to the survivors, many of whom, uh, most of whom were not Jews, of course, because the Jews hadn't survived, and ask what had happened there. As these reports were made, they were sent up the line to eventually to wind up in Moscow. And as they were sent up the line, they were edited. Edited not for style, edited for political or social content. And I was able to see how, in many instances, these documents were edited in order to de-emphasize Jewish suffering and uh, to also deal with a very painful problem for the Soviet authorities, which was collaboration by the Soviet citizens, by some Soviet citizens, with the Nazis. Researching then on the Jewish memories of the event, Gittelman found that their memory changed as time went on. Jews fought in the Soviet army for the most part, except for those who came from the Western territories. They fought purely as Soviet citizens. They were fighting for the Soviet homeland. They were fighting for Stalin. They were fighting against the fascists, not because they were killing Jews, but because they were the enemies of the Soviet Union. Fifty years later, when these same people tell you their story, they construe themselves, and I don't mean to imply that they are falsifying or misremembering. They have been influenced by the environment, and they construe themselves as resistors to the Holocaust. They didn't think of themselves when they were 17 and 18 years old, fighting in the Soviet Union, fighting against the Nazis. They didn't even know about the Holocaust in many instances. But later on, having learned about it and having understood that even if subjectively they didn't see themselves as fighting the Holocaust, objectively they were fighting the Nazis who were perpetrating the Holocaust, or they were fighting the Ukrainian nationalists who were collaborating with the Nazis, they were, in fact, fighting against the perpetrators of the Holocaust, knowing or feeling or sensing that this was a good thing in the countries to which they had emigrated, 
largely Germany, Israel, and the United States. That's the way they presented their story. You've got to take that, let's call it, inadvertent distortion into account. Sometimes, distortion of the past is not quite so inadvertent. In contemporary Russia, the state has been trying to craft a narrative of World War II that glorifies the Soviet effort while glossing over Soviet crimes in the so-called liberated territories. For Ivan Karila, a promising development is the new resistance to the state narrative that has come from various corners of Russian society. In Russia, professional historians uh, had formed uh, the Free Historical Society in Russian Volnaya Historyskoye Obshtsa back in early 2014, which was an attempt by professional historians to keep up the standards of the profession vis-à-vis the pressure from the politicians and uh, to you know to m- maintain the historical integrity vis-à-vis all of this corrupted uh, cor- uh, you know pressure from from outside. Uh, the other, or the second uh, challenge to the he- hegemonic narrative comes from the grassroots uh, memory uh, growing in Russia. During the last decade, we had, uh, um, you know, multiple uh, initiatives coming from below, from the people who are not professional historians, but neither they are politicians, who are want who, who now wants to study uh, the local history, like the history of uh, their towns, cities, uh, villages. One of the ways in which Russians are resisting the state narrative is by making the memory of the war their own. Karila says there's been a boom in family history in Russia as people try to learn about the past through the experiences of their loved ones. This is particularly illustrated by a movement known as the Immortal Regiment. And that was an attempt by uh, families to re-establish its links with a major event of the 20th century for Russia, which was the Second World War, or Great Patriotic War. And millions of people went to the streets with the portraits of their grand, grandfathers who uh, fought in the war. And they called it more Immortal Regiment. And there is a multiple explanation, what it, you know, multiple attempts to say what was that. Some people say that it was a loyalist demonstration, which I disagree. Well, there are some loyalists there, but the major uh, major idea behind that immortal regiment was that uh, uh, kind of attempt to re- regain regain uh, the major event of the Russian history uh, by the families, because for most of most of the Russians, uh, the Second World War was a f- part of the family history. People fought, people died there. I mean, the grandfathers of many Russians, I think almost the majority of Russians, uh, took place in the in the war. And it was a huge tragedy, a huge catastrophe, I would say, and a huge victory at the end. So it was very important for Russians, and uh, and people trying to regain this history of the Second World War from the state because state trying to use it as a propaganda tool. And people, no, this is not just a state victory; it's a everybody's family's history. So far, we've talked about individual countries and how they've conceptualized their past. But what if you look at several countries or regions together? That's what Mark Wolfgram from McGill University did in his new book that was published this summer. It's called Antigone's Ghosts, The Long Legacy of War and Genocide in Five Countries. In the process of writing, Wolfgram says he came to appreciate the need for comparative work in memory studies and the importance of culture to memory politics. 
uh, the reason why I drew up the comparisons that I did was because I thought I, I, it was going to be based on the secondary literature, so I needed to base it upon the research that was already out there. And the parent, so Germany and Japan made, made it perfect sense in terms of a pairing. I had done a lot of work already on Yugoslavia based upon failed grant proposals and so forth that hadn't developed to, to, into anything. So I thought, well, I'll pull Yugoslavia in. And then I began to think about, well, actually, civil wars are different from external imperialistic wars in terms of where the victims and perpetrators are at the end of the conflict and, and how they're mixed up and so forth. So I thought, well, Yugoslavia makes sense to pair with Spain. And then as I worked on the project um, and I began to appreciate more the cultural differences that exist in Japan compared to the other cases, I thought, well, I really should bring, bring Turkey into this as well. Thomas Berger, who works on Germany and Japan, illustrates this point further. He says the value of case comparisons is that they allow you to test your argument about a specific country. They help us um, understand you know, what are the commonalities by looking at what are the commonalities and then looking at the differences. We are better able to figure out in general what are the forces which may be driving um, the phenomenon, both in general but also in particular. You, know, you could say that the Germans um, developed a what I call culture of anti-militarism, that is a reluctance to use a sort of um, ambiguity and a sense of ambiguity and even distance vis-a-vis the military institution and a reluctance to rely on military force as an instrument of pursuing a national policy. And you could say, well, why is that the case? Well, probably because of the Holocaust. So why do we also have a similar po- policy right, or a similar pattern of behaviors, an anti-military culture in Japan. If you talk to Japanese going the other way around, they'll say, well, you know, it was Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Hiroshima and Nagasaki impressed upon us that war in the modern context is incredibly destructive and inhumane. And we see it as Japan's role as being the only country in the world to have suffered Hiroshima and Nagasaki to stand up for a principled position of anti-militarism. Well, but those are both, you know, unique examples. But if you take a look and you suddenly realize well, you know, there's some countries which have not suffered atomic bombings, which have a similar behavior. And there are other countries which did not commit something as awful as Auschwitz or the Japanese did awful things. Maybe we should look for some other reasons. We need to have a more nuanced understanding. So when you take a look at different cases and you see similarities, this, right, you're able to get rid of certain arguments. When you see differences, you can get rid of other arguments. Yeah? And this is, uh, this is useful. Um, in terms of, uh, from a, you know, as a social scientist who's trying to explain and understand the world, it's, it's a useful uh, tool for getting rid of the stuff. Apart from the number of case studies, the dimension of time is equally important. Sarah Rausch is interested in the dynamics of memory politics, how memory and counter-memory develop over time. She analyzed newspapers to observe changes in the German debate about the Herero-Nama genocide, which the German Empire carried out in southwest Africa in the early 1900s. To call it a genocide was taboo for a long time, but Rausch says that is no longer the case. In the early early 2000s, the term genocide was still challenged. Yeah, I mean... Journalists use the word atrocities and cruelties, and now it's completely, that's just a very common thing to, to, to write when it comes to the Herero-Nama genocide, and it was a genocide, and also the perception towards the government changed a lot. 
I mean, when the Hiro Nama filed in the first class action, I mean, they had a class action also in the 90s, but one which was also another one in 2001, you could see in, in media reporting that uh, some newspapers were just opposed to that. It was like, why? what have we apologized for? And it's like, it was rather framed in this kind of a trend. Like, this is now a new new trend that all kind of different groups pop up and claim reparations. And so it was absolutely despised what the Hero Nama tried. And because the Hero Nama also, I mean, in this at this time, the Hero, and the class action there, they draw strong connections to the Holocaust. Yeah, that was definitely what something what they did also in the in the yeah in the the lawsuit itself, and I was also where where journalists uh, and also state representatives reacted very negatively that this is something which people shouldn't do and that you could like um um historical um atrocities can't be paid off. That was the kind of narrative which was. Um, present at that time and now with this other lawsuit from 2017 there's a clear change in all of this so that like newspaper articles are much more put or putting emphasis on it that even though there would be no legal groundings to to react yeah even though germany could say yeah we like germany is a um there's state immunity so we don't have to react to this class action which was filed in new york so even though journalists or newspapers taking the stance, yeah, but there's an, a moral obligation to to act somehow, to do something about it and to, to do justice in whatever kind of ways, but at least especially in dialogue. At the heart of memory studies is the question of what exactly is being studied. Berger talks about the importance of concepts and spells out the dimensions of what he calls the official narrative of history promoted by the state. One thing that you want to be very precise about, and there's certain conceptual issues which um, you have to understand, what is it that I'm really studying here? Um, it's uh, when you, again, this is just, I don't know what the audience's concerns are, but if you're a social scientist, um, this is a painful business and you go and you study something and you say, you know, the question I asked wasn't really the question I, I wanted to ask, right? You walk in there and you have a plan and empirical messy reality forces you to, to, to reformulate things. I think for what I do um, in terms of historical memory, you want to understand, first of all, what are the stories? You want to understand how these, let's use the phrase narratives, so um, we had a little bit of a debate about whether narratives are the right uh, term. But, so, you know, narratives are stories that groups of people tell to make sense of the world, which orient them towards the world, which they share with one another. So what are the narratives? How have the narratives changed? The dependent variable that I've often looked at is um, what is uh, the official narrative? That is, what are governments doing that um, shape how society views history. And there are different areas which reflect the official narrative. Berger says the official narrative, his dependent variable, is made of five dimensions. First are direct statements by politicians on memory. Second are monuments or commemorations sanctioned by the state. Third, historical narratives in education as approved in official textbooks or curricula. Fourth, the aspect of victimhood, 
who is deemed a victim, and how they are compensated. And fifth is criminal law, spelling out which behaviors are acceptable and what can qualify as hate speech. Um, uh, all of these things are memory-bearing. One way or another, they speak directly to what kind of historical narrative um, is the state creating. And so these are different dimensions that you can take a look at. And then you can take a look at public opinion polls, you can take a look at what political leaders are saying, you can look at party platforms, um, all of these things. It becomes a very exhausting and uh, uh, exercise. And you want to study it over time. Again, if you really want to get at what's going on, you don't want to settle for a snapshot because um, the underlying forces are often invisible at any given moment. But how can we measure the different dimensions that make up a historical narrative? Mark Wolfgram, the author of the recent book, tells us about his research methods. I, I primarily work uh, with qualitative methods. Uh, I'm very much concerned about focusing upon meaning and how people understand things. Uh, and, 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 then, and also, as I talked about in, in the presentation, the the production of discussions about the past and how they how they develop in, in films and in books and in theater productions and so forth. Uh, I'm interested, you know, if there's a if there's a, a way in which my scholarship leans against some maybe some of the other ones that are out there, it it certainly is very much focused upon what's happening in the society. And I tend to eschew a little bit elite discussions. Uh, I certainly don't ignore them because I think that I think they are essential. But I'm interested in, in what happens in, in the society and, and how people wrestle with these sorts of questions. As Wolfgram suggests, scholars can look at historical narratives through the cultural output of a given society. But he wishes there was more data that could be used for quantitative analysis. Well, it would be great to be able to count things more often. Uh, and, and I do try to count things when I can, because otherwise you're sort of left with impressions. And so I, I think it's very useful to try to, uh, when possible, find things to, to count. So, and that depends upon the, the data sources that are available or, or what I can manage to do with my, my knowledge of English and German. So I, there were things that I didn't have access to, and maybe there were other pieces there. But, it, but to be able to uh, look at those uh, radio programs that deal with Nazi persecution of the Jews, and one could say, well, you know, something was changing in the 80s, but how much did things really change in the 80s? So by being able to count things in newspaper articles, you know, how often... Were these things being discussed in, in different newspapers? How often were they being discussed in, on radio programs? What was happening in the cinema? Uh, that begins to create a, a visual picture and to be able to count some things. But the thing with memories is, no matter how you quantify them, you'll never reach an objective truth. Memories differ across people and societies, and they also change over time. For Zvi Gittelman, who studies Belarusian partisans, the most important question is, why do people have the memories that they do? It's not always to establish what you just called the truth. You're safer, in a way, in establishing perceptions. They may not tell you exactly correctly where they were, but you can gain an understanding of what they thought they were fighting for. We all know now about multiple instances, hundreds, thousands, of rape by Red Army soldiers. If you ask an interviewee as delicately as possible, did you do that? I'd never get a positive answer. At best, I'd get an answer. I didn't, 
but my fellow soldiers did. Is that the truth or not? Does it really matter? Memory politics themselves have also changed over time. Sarah Rausch underlines that post-colonial approaches to memory have only recently become more important, and there remains scope for more research. The debate of the genocide of the Herero and Nama committed by Germany has also shown that memory politics remains a contested and therefore highly interesting field. Yeah, hopefully um, there will be put more of emphasis on still, I mean, post-colonial approaches in this, I mean, or more, also more maybe academic entanglements. <laughs> well, I mean, I know this is really something, I mean, also in France, I mean, it's so recent, right? I mean, there was um, Felix and George just started also with this law from 2005, I mean, this is really the year when post-colonialism entered France. <laughs> and, I mean, for the German case, even later, I don't really look forward to seeing this much, much more discussions between... I mean, for example, when you talk about the Holocaust, I mean, this is... Maybe this is a very German debate, I don't know. But uh, you have this, the, the continuity thesis. So you have this one historian really drawing this line from... Um, from Windhoek um, to Auschwitz. I mean, one of his books is called like this. And this is highly contested. And you, you still have this uniqueness debate. In, or still, you will ever have it. Well, I don't know. But this is also when where memory politics is super contentious and highly political. And um, yeah, this is interesting just to, to see how this is going to pursue in, in the future, if it's really possible to... to, to Untangle, detangle, I don't know, um, these different uh, histories. Finally, we asked participants where they see memory studies going in the future. Some think the field will evolve to encompass new disciplines, while others say it might merge with existing fields. Yvonne Carilla believes memory studies could become part of a new approach to history. Theoretically, I would not exclude the future when the memory studies will be incorporated back into history, for instance. If historians will reassess their own tasks, if historians reassess uh, the, uh, the type of the questions, the type of the problems they are dealing with, the memory studies could be a part of the new, new history, which is you know which could be different. But uh, because there is a lot of uh, common thing between historians and, and memory studies, because both are studying the past, because both are studying the relations between the contemporary and something which is. If classic historians will, you know, new generation of classic historians will reassess their attitudes, and uh, I would not exclude the memory studies would be incorporated in this new, renewed history. Meanwhile, Mark Wolfram says memory studies could enrich traditional political science by introducing the element of culture. At the same time, memory studies could benefit more from the toolbox of social science. One, one frustration that I have with political science as, as a field uh, in general is that it, it doesn't deal well with culture. Um, it's quite often the discussion is limited to something around the ideas of political culture, but I, again, I, I think it would be useful just to start dealing with culture the way that anthropologists deal with culture and, and other disciplines. That's it for this episode. 
Thanks for joining us for the second installment of our discussion on memory politics. Once again, I'm Olga Kuzmina, and I hope you'll join me for the third and final episode, where we'll look at historical memory and society. See you next time.